Today I'm joined by Rhiannon Sauerbutz, the author of the paper Bank Liquidity and the Cost of Debt. First, can you describe the context of your publication? So global liquidity requirements are a relatively new development. They came into place after the global financial crisis, where a lot of banks failed because they didn't have the liquidity to keep funding to kind of keep funding themselves after lots of investors refused to fund them anymore. Even though they were, a lot of banks that kind of failed or got into difficulties were reasonably solvent. But liquidity crises have come, so liquidity requirements have come into a fair amount of criticism. So liquid assets don't really yield very much compared to things that are more illiquid. And so there's been a lot of criticism that it's making the cost of maturity transformation, which is a fundamental thing that banks and other financial firms do, more expensive. And it also potentially means that they're doing a lot of less lending because they're having to hold kind of liquid assets such as sovereign bonds instead of you know, lending to households, etc. But we think that there's a potentially an important factor that people have neglected in this criticism. And this idea is that, well, if liquidity requirements mean that a bank run, like we saw in 2008, is less likely, then that means that the bank is safer. And that means investors should ask for a lower premium to, on their debt to invest in the bank. And this means that if the cost of these liquidity requirements might actually be lower than a lot of people think. Can you outline the three-period theoretical model? Basically, you have a bank and investors at the beginning period. And the bank, they have a long-term investment that's risky or liquid. And that's going to pay off in two periods' time. But you don't know what it's going to pay off when you invest in the first period. And then you also have... So they just basically choose whether to invest the money that they've got between the liquid assets and the risky asset. And then investors decide at the first period whether they're going to invest in the bank. Now, the interesting action all happens in the middle period. So in the middle period, investors get a signal about whether the risky asset is going to pay off. Like, you know, has the bank done a good investment? And so in the middle period, they can decide whether they're going to withdraw their money if or not. So effectively, in the middle period, investors get a signal and then they decide, okay, is there going to be a bank run or not? Now, when we go back to the first period, when the investors decide whether they're going to invest in the bank, they have to think, okay, well, given the bank's like liquid assets and the choices that it makes, how likely do I think a bank run is going to be in the middle period? And then that's going to determine like basically, if the bank has lots of liquid assets, then they're going to think, OK, maybe a bank run is less likely. And so that's going to determine the amount of funding that they require to invest in the bank. Can you describe your model of investor behavior with reference to the global game? Yes. Uh, okay. These are called global game solution methods. And it's basically a really nice, simple well, not super simple way, um, that means that you have one equilibrium, that we don't have to mul- uh, worry about multiple equilibria. And kind of, the basic result of this is kind of investors are going to get a signal, like their own private signal. So they open up the FT and they get a signal like, OK, wait, this bank, I know it's invested in that company and this company doesn't seem to be doing that well. And they think, OK, well, should I withdraw my funds from the bank? But 
Their optimal decision depends on what they think everyone else is going to do. So if all the investors see a bad signal, they're going to think, oh, wait a second. Because you don't know what everyone else has seen. Like maybe someone's reading City AM, maybe someone's reading the FT, like about the same company. And so they think, okay, well, if I get a bad signal, probably everyone else is going to have a bad signal. And that means that I should run. Like, you know, everyone's going to withdraw their money. I don't want to be left, you know, when the bank's got nothing left to pay. On the other hand, if they read a good signal, if they kind of open up the FT and see a good signal, they're like, okay, well, actually, probably the bank is going to survive. You know, this looks like it's invested in some really good, sensible projects. Even if other investors run, well, you know, I'm going to survive the bank's going to survive. So those are the kind of two really extreme cases, like a really bad signal, you know you're going to run. But basically, in the middle, it's kind of not completely clear. You really have to think about what other people are doing and how much liquidity the bank's got. So they kind of get a signal, like, okay, maybe I've read like the FT and, you know, the signal about what the bank invests in are kind of okay. Then they have to think, okay, so I'm going to run, but if I run, is everyone else going to run? And also, will the bank survive the run? So if, it's got, if the bank's got a, li- a lot of liquid assets, it means that as an investor, I can kind of think, well, okay, I've got a medium signal, but actually, I don't have to worry so much about what everyone else is doing because I know that when they go to the bank, the bank's just going to pay them out with cash that it has and it doesn't have to sell anything. So ba- basically, these global games models are a way of thinking, okay, for what level of signal or news that I get, at what point do I have to start worrying about what everyone else will do? And given what I know about the bank, how liquid it is, like if I open, it means that I can kind of open up the FT and go, okay, with that signal, I'm going to run, and everything above it, I'm going to stay. Yeah. That's the idea of them. And what we show is that when the bank has more liquid assets, it means that the investor is able to stay for less good signals because it doesn't have to worry so much about what everyone else is doing. How did you test your model and what data did you use? Well, when we say test, I'm going to say it's very difficult to identify this. Lots of other things are going on. So the best we can do is just really look at kind of bank funding costs where we use um, credit default swaps because that's the kind of thing that's really liquid and gets traded a lot. And then we kind of see how that relates to how many, like the liquid asset ratio of the bank, which is broadly the liquid assets it has over its total assets, you know, whether it's funded itself short term or long term, because that kind of tells you about how many of these kind of investors who are able to read the FT and withdraw their money you've got. And then we also control for like a number of other things. For example, the bank's general business model might be quite important. And then we basically look at that, I think, over 2009 to 2017. And then we find kind of a negative relationship, by, by which I mean that the funding costs, which are the CDS spreads, go down as a bank holds more liquid assets. Mm-hmm. So it seems that our model actually makes empirical sense. What do your results show? The results show that, a, if I kind of put it in terms of magnitude, not only the relationship, but we can also kind of pinpoint the size of that relationship. And it seems that, I think the easiest way to explain it is if a bank increases its liquid asset ratio from 10% to 11%, 
um, then that means its credit defaults, well, its kind of funding costs, will go down by about 2 to 3%. So if its credit default swap is 100, then it will decrease to about 97. What policy implications does this have? I think the ultimate policy implication is that if you're trying to think about what the optimal liquidity requirements are, you look at the costs and you look at the benefits. And so one thing we're saying, well, actually the costs in terms of bank profitability, in terms of the amount of kind of illiquid, like real economy lending they can do, and but mainly profitability, are actually lower than a lot of the banks might be saying. And, th- and that's a really important thing. 